Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. That's yeah. They have asked for that, really. France are going to the World Cup. Get over it. This fellow Ronaldo is a cop. Boom, 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 foul. Boom, 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 yellow card. Nah, it's actually dogs, I have to ask you to mind your language. And I suggest you shut up and show more football. Good lad. I don't throw teacups. It's not my style. I think I'd rather throw punches. What you doing down here, you shorty man? <laughs> it's the Irish Times second captain's post football <laughs> podcast. The first podcast post Jose Mourinho at Chelsea Park 2. He's been sacked. That laugh you heard, that guffaw is from a holiday in Ken Early. Yeah. This is very much a staycation, Ken. You're staying in the Irish Times Second Captain's podcast studio. In the work zone, Owen. To react. And Murph, you're still here. I'm still here. I'm in shock uh, at Ken's yeah. dedication. I should, say we, I should say we did have another football podcast fully recorded. Simon was literally ready to press that button. I don't know how you guys heard the news. I was on the Normally I cycle. Uh, people these started texting yeah, well, I got it also, Ken. I heard it on the radio. I was, oh, really? I actually had the car in there. I had to go out to Stillorgan. Yeah. And I was just literally about to hit the N11 there. Just just the point of no return. Yeah. You know? I was going over Leeson Street Bridge. And then I hear on the radio, Joseph Mourinho sacked. Turn that bad boy around. What else, what else you heard, though, was the, the, the news horn being sounded by For Simon. Ke- and yeah. That we had to immediately assemble. Drop exactly. everything. Amazing. Your initial reaction, Ken? Uh, well, he's got what he seems to have wanted for such a long time. Yeah, he did. Seem he's to kind of been he's been going for this for so long. I mean, since the since the first few weeks of the season, it seems as though he's been actively trying to provoke what has finally happened today. I mean, Monday. Monday was insane. Just a joke, <laughs> you know. I mean, how can you? Uh, it, it, the way that he was speaking was he was pushing every uh, provocative button designed to to make his position untenable. Like accusing his players of betraying him, Design, being, designed to lose the dressing room and make his position lose the dressing room and lose the boardroom. Absolutely, in one go, yeah. You know, th- these guys are are not good enough. You know, I was the one who brought them up to championship level. They've betrayed me. Uh, you know, they're they're bad players, and not, you know, nobody. So it sounded it was a bit like um, Brendan Rodgers, you know, saying, "Give me the tools and I will do the work." <laughs> Except it was it was deliberate. You know, Rodgers was actually trying to hang on to his job. This is a guy who was who was deliberately saying things that he knew would fracture beyond repair his relationship, whatever was left of it. And I don't think there was much of it left, to be fair, between him, his players and his employers. So uh, just a bizarre uh, meltdown from Mourinho, which is which has you know, gone on for several months. And I think this this has been that Chelsea should have done this, you know, before Halloween, uh, because already everything was was ruined by then. It was already uh, it had already gone spiraled out of control. It had already passed the point of no return. I think the big thing with Jose Mourinho is that his whole style of management is based on charisma. Uh, if you are if you're a charismatic leader, um, it's depend your power over the people who you're leading is dependent to a large extent on the illusions that they have about you in their in their head. They have to believe that you are bigger than life. Mm-hmm. You know they believe because because nobody really has magical powers. You know, nobody really has this kind of uh, superior, almost supernatural insight that Jose Mourinho has at times been able to make his players believe that he has. Um, And once the kind of mask has fallen away and once the, you know, the illusions have been have been destroyed, it's impossible to recreate them. That's why he's always wanted to move on, move on to the next place, move on to the next group of players. Um, You know, at, at Chelsea, uh, you know the, the kind of you know the Wizard of Oz situation 
where it's all the kind of curtain has dropped and suddenly we just see Hans Molman sitting at a spinning wheel, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Instead of this all, all powerful and magical being. Um, it's, nobody can re-believe in it once they've stopped believing in it. And that's what happened to Mourinho, I think, a couple of months ago. Well, let's get to the statement here first. I'm, I always look, ever since the, Roy, the Manchester United Roy Keane statement where they left out a year of his service. Yeah. I, I'm always looking for mistakes in these statements because <laughs> people that really pisses people off. Yeah. When you've done a lot for a club and feel you have and then they just get something wrong. Was it 12? and proper order it, in yeah. fairness. It's supposed to be 12 and a half. Yeah. They just wrote 12. Uh, well, I think they might have even taken a full year off. Anyway, Chelsea Football Club and Jose Mourinho have today parted company by mutual consent. By the mm. way, nobody... We'll get back to that. Okay, I'll read the statement first. Very excited. I mean, it is exciting. There's no doubt this news is exciting. It's, this is a hot take on. Chelsea Football Club and Jose Mourinho have today parted company by mutual consent. All at Chelsea thank Jose for his immense contribution since he returned as manager in the summer of 2013. His three league titles, FA Cup, Community Shield and three League Cup wins over two spells make him the most successful manager in our 110 year history. But both Jose and the board agreed results have not been good enough this season and believe it is in the best interests of both parties to go our separate ways. The club wishes to make clear Josie leaves us on good terms and will always remain a much-loved, respected and significant figure at Chelsea. His legacy at Stamford Bridge and in England has long been guaranteed and he will always be warmly welcomed back to Stamford Bridge. The club's focus is now on ensuring our talented squad reaches its potential. There will be no further comment until a new appointment is made. So I guess the interesting point of that is that he, according to the statement, hmm. Josie agreed with this. Agreed this oh, is the well, I can't imagine he was too upset uh, to get this call given that you know, as we were as we were saying, he is he's been asking for it. I mean, literally asking for it, begging for this to happen. So finally, he's got what he wanted. Um, he probably had to act as though he was disappointed or you know insulted or slightly indignant when the, when they made this call. It's interesting that it was done by a call, not not by a meeting. Um, but yeah, I mean, did they say call? Yeah, is that what it said in the statement? They said that he called. Said that he called him right. Did they say that? I read that. I read that a couple of minutes ago. On maybe. Oh, yeah. that's okay. Yeah. But um, yeah. So that's. Uh, I mean, this is this is this is it. Like, I mean, okay. Why, so why is this happening? I mean, if you look at Mourinho's return, look at his return to Sunbridge. What has he accomplished? Uh, he came in at first, and remember, he said, "I'm a different person now. I'm the happy, the happy person." Uh, and he seemed, in, and while he was saying this, he seemed really miserable because he just come out of this toxic nightmare that Real Madrid had become for him, where his kind of charismatic leadership never really took hold from the very beginning. It just didn't happen for him there because there were players there like uh, Casillas, uh, Sergio Ramos, uh, players who had won the World Cup, uh, who had won the European Championships, who considered themselves to be at the top of the game, who considered Jose Mourinho at best to be on their level, not some kind of a godlike figure who was going to come in and, and lead them to, to glory. They were just, oh, here's another manager. Except this one seems to really fancy himself uh, quite a lot. And he lost their respect um, in a variety of ways. But I, I think, weirdly, some of, the, some of the minor, almost personal details were almost the more, more damaging things to him. He used to apparently speed around the car park, you know, pulling um, donuts in his, in his Aston Martin kind of thing, you know. He, he uh, you know, considered himself an outstanding amateur rally driver was one of the things that the players were sniggering at in that, uh, in that you know, brilliant book uh, written by uh, Diego Torres about his time at Real Madrid, uh, the special one, uh, or the dark side of Jose Mourinho, whatever, whatever the name of it was. Uh, George Mendes was there all the time. The players were like, well, does this guy have his own office at our training ground now? You know, boasting to the players about how much money Mendes had. Oh, you wouldn't believe the money this guy has. All of these things just kind of made the Real Madrid players think to themselves, this guy is just kind of an annoying little guy. You know, he's, he's kind of a weird little dude who thinks he's going to impress us by speeding around and boasting about money. That's not going to work here. You know what I mean? And then, you know, he obviously disagreed with some of the players. Tried to, he tried to frag Iker Casillas. Not frag, that's the wrong word. It's uh, to, to get rid of Casillas, which, which didn't work because the players all liked him. You know, Sergio Ramos was openly defying him by the end. He, he was, you know, according to Diego Torres, reduced to tears in the dressing room one time as he accused the players of betraying him by leaking information to the media. So that wasn't a good situation. He went to Chelsea uh, too soon, I thought. I thought he should have taken some time off. Because the last time that he left the club in bad circumstances was actually Chelsea, 2007. He ended up going. He ended up taking the rest of the season off, most of that season, arriving back at Inter and seeming genuinely back, you know, focused back on what he was, you know, had had, had cut out some of the um, 
he, you know, his head had cleared a little mm. bit and he was able to concentrate on his job. I thought he probably should have done that again after he left Real Madrid, but instead he went straight back to Chelsea, said I'm happy and so on, said we're, we're, it's a different club here now. It's a different kind of a club. We've got these great young players as Hazard, Oscar, you know, Kevin De Bruyne, all of these, uh, these kind of skillful players. We know the kind of, we know what the owner wants. It's a new template. It's a new model. We want to see skill, passing, you know, speed, interchanging, attacking football. By halfway through his first season, he had binned all that. He, he, I remember they had a few bad results and then he said, right, you know, these guys, he started challenging the players saying, these guys haven't really produced what they're supposed to produce. Um, he went to Arsenal, I remember, got a nil-nil. And it was like, yeah, you know, it was kind of one of those chest-beating Jose Mourinho, nil-nils. You know, that's the kind of thing I want to see. That's what, you know, that's real football. That's, that's winning football. I'm not, we're not interested in any of this nonsense anymore. No, that was fine. And, and the results actually went pretty well for Chelsea. And he, and he was putting together, again, the ki- a kind of Jose Mourinho team, the kind of which, the like of which, you know, has, has been successful uh, at, at various other clubs. He'd essentially got his way. Yeah. But right there, there was already the beginnings of a kind of... Uh, Split already. He wasn't doing what he was supposed to do, what he what he said he would do. I.e., bring in these young players, build a new type of team. Already, he he had kind of reneged on that initial commitment. So that was going to be there was always going to be a little bit of whatever the results were. Remember, he goes on wins the title. They signed Costa, Fabregas. You know these kind of ready-made players uh, who slotted in and did really well initially. So he won the title, and that's that's fair enough. But I kind of always think that Roman Abramovich thinks they should win the title anyway. You know what I mean? It's, it's well, as a bare minimum. Yeah, it's not really fair on the Chelsea manager because it's not as though they're Celtic. You know what I mean? There are some other clubs who are capable of beating them. But I think Abramovich sort of thinks, yeah, you know, you should probably be winning the title with this thing. So you don't necessarily get that much credit for that. The other thing that Mourinho had been doing is selling the future of the team. Like Chelsea had, had uh, got Romelu Lukaku from... Uh, where, I can't even remember the Belgian club. Was it probably Anderlecht? Go on, we'll go with Anderlecht for the time being. I'll check it, I'll okay. check it out. Romelu Lukaku from his Belgian club. Yep. And The uh, man's on holidays. Cut him some slack, will <laughs> there, was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of players, a lot of clubs rather interested in Lukaku. This guy, from the time he was 14, 15, everyone was saying, this guy is going to be absolutely amazing. Chelsea managed to get him ahead of a lot of other players. Explo- from Anderlecht. From Anderlecht. Exploited the fact that he was a Chelsea fan, a Didier Drogba fan. Got him... Uh, on board, thought this guy, great, you know, we've got a top centre forward now. This guy is going to be here for years. Um, Kevin De Bruyne, the same kind of situation. You know, this is this guy is really sought after. We're going to bring this guy. What does Mourinho do? He just gets rid of these guys. These are the players who should currently be in the Chelsea team. Look how look how well they're playing for Manchester City and Everton. You know, so much better than the equivalent players in Chelsea's team. Mourinho sold those guys. Uh, that's, you know, they, they were brought in by the club. Mourinho obviously thought, now. Nah, don't really fancy these. So it's kind of, again, the people who signed them are, are thinking, oh, this is a mistake. You know, so he's, there's always the, there's these pockets of irritation, you know, growing. Obviously, the fans are all on side. The players mostly seem to be on side still at that stage. But there's kind of things, he's doing things which isn't going to make the club happy. And when the time came this summer, he said, oh, these are the players I want to bring in. Suddenly, it seems like the club doesn't really want to cooperate. They sold Czech to Arsenal, which made him really angry. He really did not. And look how well Czech is doing now. Because, angry because he went to Arsenal as opposed to angry because he was sold. Do not sell one of my... Do not sell this player to a title rival, especially not Wenger. Do not sell him to a team that he can do damage to us. Do not do that. Mm. Sell him to, like, Kilmarnock. Abramovich apparently got on really well with Czech. He said, look, you know, I th- thanks for everything you've done for me. You've been a great player for us. If you want to go to Arsenal, that's fine with me. And, and Czech's like, great, you know, he gets to stay in London, he gets to play for another big club, you know, he's, he's back in the game. Mourinho's thinking, no, no, I don't care about Petr, I don't care about Petr Czech, his happiness, the happiness of his family, Get just get him away from here. So that was a big turning point. I think that was a big, that was a big thing with him, Czech. he was really angry about that at the start of the season. Um, they lost to Arsenal, if you remember, there was that ridiculous... Uh, stuff that Mourinho was his kind of antics at the end of that game oh clapping and you know uh, shaking every Arsenal player's hand remember as they came down <laughs> until eventually he avoids Wenger at the end they both I had actually totally forgotten about that point that's amazing it's only a few weeks ago it's so stupid like this was the kind of stupid stuff that was yes. going on and, and you're looking watching that remember we were talking about it at the time thinking that's that's a bit weird you know why is he doing that he looks, he looks foolish. This is the problem. It makes him look bad. He was complaining that, where's John Stones? He kept talking about John Stones in the media. 
uh, and Chelsea obviously weren't going to buy or weren't going to pay whatever we're looking for for John Stones. But Mourinho kept throwing it out there. Oh, yeah, I think we're about to sign John Stones. Putting pressure on the club didn't happen. You know, so he was then really angry. And, he, and there was a lot of this, uh, well, what am I supposed to do with these guys? What am I supposed to do? The, the club hasn't followed through. I gave them a list in April. The club hasn't followed through. Meanwhile, then, you've then, the very first game of the season, the thing happens with the doctor. And that's, that is, of all the things, of all the things that have happened, I think that is the most significant single incident because it's got this similar effect of exposing Mourinho as just a spiteful, petty, vindictive little arsehole. Yeah, for what it's worth, that's what turned me against Mourinho. And I've always been a big fan. I really have been up until I, maybe this season. Maybe that particular incident. Mm. Uh, possibly I shouldn't have been as forgiving uh, of him uh, for, as, as I was for poking other managers in the eyes and so forth. Mm. But there's just something about that that was so disgusting. Yeah. Uh, it, it was just, on, just on a basic human level, it was just awful. I was, and I don't think you were alone by any of course, uh, yeah. stretch of the imagination there, to be honest. I think that, that there was just an undercurrent to that, which was just really malicious. Bullying, everything about it yeah. was just awful. There was, there was so many things wrong with it. First of all, the, the basic cynicism of of his objection to her going on the field was that <laughs> Hazard obviously isn't seriously injured. <laughs> He's just wasting time. What are you doing? Don't you understand anything about the game? He kind of insulted her, suggested she didn't know anything about the game, mentioned, you know, whether you're a secretary or, you know, which, you know, there was a definite edge of sexism there. Remember that he'd said this thing about Rafa Benitez's wife as well. Oh, yeah. She needs to, you know, not exactly. He didn't quite say she needs to get back in the kitchen, make sure Rafa's eating some green leaf salads because frankly you know the man's a disgrace you know look at the size of this guy that was that was the that was both sexist and and uh, talking disparaging about somebody's physical appearance and childishly insulting to a professional (laughs) peer uh, while insulting his wife Uh, you know there's so many things wrong with it but in this case you know he's cynically saying uh, Hazard can't be injured what are you doing you don't understand the game so he's kind of the implication there is a Hazard's cheating, or he, he's he's engaging in gamesmanship. Hazard's like, I was actually injured, like you know, I needed the doctor. <laughs> the referees had called her on. I, now, even if if Marina had just exploded in that moment and gone, "What are you doing?" You know, and called her a you know uh, son of a bitch. It, Portuguese is is a great language in that you can apply a gender specific son and daughter. No one no one really says daughter of a bitch. In English, mm-hmm. but you can in Portuguese, and it sounds almost exactly the same. So that's what he called her. If he'd just done that, it would have been like, okay, you know, he's he's lost his temper, he's lost his temper. But it wasn't just that. He he got really angry at the at the moment, then trashed her afterwards. You know, explained in both his his interview on Sky and his press conference why this was wrong. So he he kind of heaped further, you know, disgrace upon her. He was blaming her in public for a risky situation putting all the blame on her. Then, when she uh, she put something on Facebook about, oh, thanks for the support, you know, a couple of days later, because those of people were saying, oh, Eva, this is terrible. Like, we, we don't agree with this, by the way. You know, you were just doing your job. He has no right to go on like that. And uh, so what happens then? The next day, she comes in after this Facebook thing, and she's suddenly demoted. You know, she's out. So he's now, he can't admit he's wrong, and he's he's um, making, his, making it worse. He's It's like this aggressive sort of, Pride, proud sort of response. Oh, you know, how dare you challenge my authority? Even though I've made a mistake, I'm now going to reinforce that error. Yeah, and she challenges his authority in the most tame terms possible. Mm. But it was just the temerity. It's, it's when one person is bullying another person, the other person has the temerity to stick up for themselves in some small way, as yeah. it was. So she gets to say something. That's her, her only form. She's not going to go and do a lot of interviews about it. She's not going to have a press conference. So she says it in Facebook. And then he kills her for that. Then he, she's then that's the she's good, gone. She's so gone, that's yeah. constructive dismissal, you know. And that that case is coming up next month, and that's going to be a laugh. <laughs> you know, that's going to be a laugh for for everyone, all the Jose watchers out there. You know, will he admit that he made a mistake? Will he apologize? You know, maybe now that he's no longer the Chelsea manager, he's maybe he feels maybe he would feel more in a position to do that. Mm. He he obviously felt that to admit having made a mistake would undermine his his own pathetic authority. You know what I mean? But in failing to acknowledge that this was fake, I think he lost it anyway. Because everybody was looking at it going, this is terrible. Hey, you know, how can you do that? I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, Dr. Carnero was, you know, the, the life and soul of the Chelsea dressing room or the most, the linchpin that was holding the club together. It was more that it was such an outrageous example of bad behaviour that it takes 
away. It, people lose respect. On my, you can't help losing respect. You're thinking, oh. And suddenly everything he does is being looked is being seen in a different light by the players. But he didn't really seem to help himself either. I mean, remember, he comes back uh, when Chelsea had a game against Everton after an international break. Mourinho turned up looking like a looking a state. You know, he's unshaven, kind of wild-eyed, complaining about only having had one day. I've had one day. I've had one day to train these guys. You're like, what are you talking about? You've just had all summer. You know, this is everyone's in the same position. Stop creating problems for yourself. They, did they lose the game against Everton or was it a high-scoring draw? I think they probably lost Everton, actually. Um, they did. They did lose. Uh, and that suddenly, suddenly they were losing, 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 losing games. Losing games at home. Losing to Palace. You know, uh, getting destroyed by Liverpool uh, after, after leading. He tried getting destroyed by Man City early in the season away. That he tried uh, substituting John Terry at halftime in that game. Remember? Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, I'm going to crack the whip. You know? So much happened in one half a season, by the way. Oh, in yeah. Jesmarino's last half season. Oh, it's the, amazing. The old Chelsea Lion, you know, he shoots, he shoots the old Chelsea Lion, king of the circus, has him dragged out, has him dragged out by the tail and like strung <laughs> up to hang there, uh, you know, on the sideline. Halfway side through line. the show. In disgrace. You know, oh, halfway, halfway through. through. So John Terry has to sit there being filmed by these cameras while, you know, man, you know, being blamed for losing to Man City. But he tried that with every player. Sooner or later, every player came into the crosshairs. You know what I mean? There was Matic. He he had a he, he deconstructed Matic's game. He's lost it. Obviously, the, the boy he's making mistakes all the time. He's he can't do very simple actions. He made Matic sound like he had, you know <laughs> some kind of you know cognitive Issue. issues. You know what I mean? <laughs> he 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 kicked Fabregas out of the team. Hazard obviously he's just abused oh. all season. Diego Costa, constant abuse. Like, where, where do you think that's going to get you with, with a guy like Jago Costa? <laughs> Seriously. Ivanovic, obviously, he's, he's speaking about him like he, he's a special case. Um, everybody uh, in the team, apart from William, William's been the un, one shining light. I remember a friend of mine saying, reminding me of, remember Austin Powers? Where uh, the, one of the Austin Powers movies, like, someone steals his mojo mm. and, like, I you know, ends well. up. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, basically, that, that William had had somehow in a preseason training camp like sucked up all the mojo of all the other Chelsea players and was like suddenly all shagadelic and all this kind of stuff and all the other Chelsea players were just kind of shuffling around shagadelic that's <laughs> definitely the first ever mention of shagadelic in uh, hoping not the last history William has just had a most amazing shagadelic season of all time <laughs> just scoring free kicks from all angles he's, he's been literally a hero He's been a here. He's been player of the year, for you know, not for just for Chelsea, but possibly him, Vardy, and Mares are by far the best players in the league, you know. So, but unfortunately, everyone else, okay, he he, he managed to refrain from from attacking William for that. You you then get the you know, like I was saying, to Brown going for fifty million to Man City. That was an embarrassing one. This, but there was just so many things, and he, he then made this ridiculous speech. Uh, I can't even remember which game it was after. Uh, it was Southampton, I think. They lost to Southampton. Seven and a half minutes of I'm the greatest, I'm the best manager this club's ever had, challenging the club um, in, a, in a really provocative way, uh, trying to make it look as though if they sacked them then it would be their fault for being, you know, trigger-happy, stupid club, and that everybody knows that about them. You know, not, not great. Then the, the Liverpool game is the next. I think he, uh, that was the one where he had nothing to say, nothing to say about anything. All the while... Uh, blaming referees, blaming other people, blaming players. Ball boys. Bo- like, ball boys. The ball boys were disgraced to the Premier League. I mean, that's that's hilarious. See, that's parody. That's like yeah. deliberate. Like, what can I say? You know, like the da- David Squires had a cartoon about him this week. Do my players hate art? I cannot say, but they have torn down my creation and defecated upon it. You know, <laughs> this, this, is, this, this is the kind of ridiculous stuff that he, he understands how, how these things work. He understands yeah. how to message, you know, messaging he understands uh, if he uses words like betrayal, how serious that's going to be, what what a fracture that's going to cause. And he was doing it. He was pouring petrol on the flames. He wanted out of there. And I suppose he, he's got what he wanted. I'll tell you what, now that we have you here, Ken, in from your mm-hmm. holidays, do you mind hanging on for another little while? Why not? Let's Is that do okay? it. Because we had a chat earlier on. We, by the way, we talked to Dion Fanning uh, about the about Jose Mourinho and what he was up to and the interview and all these things. I had a great chat with Dion, which now is basically unplayable because it doesn't make any sense mm. without the additional quirk in the story <laughs> that Mourinho hasn't been fired. So that's the missing, we're going to have to axe that out of this edit. That's the missing Dion Fanning mm. interview. Someday the, it will a, surface. A bootleg, a bootleg tape will <laughs> yeah. eventually surface. I'm what sure. we did also talk about, which makes even more sense now to play it, is our interview with... Michael Calvin, right? Michael Calvin wrote, uh, has written a book this year called Living on the Volcano, The Secrets of Surviving as a Football Manager. Pretty much about 
uh, how it's a terrible job and you get fired all the time. There's a lot more to it than that, but it's a lot of getting sacked in this story, and I think it's of even more relevance now. Uh, the reason that we want part of the reason we want to talk to Michael about this, it's a very good book, uh, but it featured prominently in our first podcast today, which did go out, which was uh, a look at all the sports books this year. Maliki Clerken's favourite sports book of the year was Living on the Volcano. So let's play this chat. This was before Jose, but it should make a lot of sense to you. The first point I made to Michael was that we've been talking quite a lot about this book already today, a lot of kind words about it. Uh, so we'll take it up at that point. Thank you very much. All kindness gratefully accepted. <laughs> I'm sure it is. And funny, what one of our contributors said was when Gary Monk was sacked, immediately his first thought was the portrayal of Monk in this book. It, that's it, it's that's always a good sign, I guess, for a book that it has that impact. What about yourself? Do you feel more of an empathy for these guys? Because quite a few of them have lost their jobs since you wrote about them. Well, they have. And it's, it's strange, you know, quite opposite that we're talking today because, um, you know, uh, we've had John Steele, who's also featured in the book. He's just been sacked. Uh, just before midday, uh, and I exchanged text with um, Brian McDermott this morning, uh, and he's going to be announced as uh, as the new Reading manager. So, you know, one on the merry-go-round, one off it, um, or should we say one thrown into the volcano and one clinging onto the side yet again. So, yeah, it's, it's quite an interesting process. Um, um, you know, one or two cynical people have said to me, what a fantastic idea for the book, because uh, in a couple of years, you can do a completely different sequel. <laughs> yeah, it is true, yeah. I mean, this, uh, you do, the stats are, when you lay them bare, pretty pretty shocking. 58% of first-time managers never getting back into work when they're sacked. Uh, it takes a, a sacked manager an average of 18 months to find another job. The, somebody like Gary Monk, for example, um, I mean, he seems to have done, the way you, you write about him, he seems to have done all he could to improve himself as a manager, to make sure he was getting the best out of himself, and still it, nothing seems to protect these guys. No, no, I think it's because there is this element of, of it being a fashion industry. Um, you know, you only have to see, you know, at, the, at this week with the Swansea chairman um, toddling off to South America to see um, if he can get, you know, you know the latest saviour from, from an unlikely source. Um I think with Gary, it was it was a strange one because it does show how capricious the whole um, system is. Um, at the start of this season, you know they'd beaten Manchester United. Um, people were talking about Swansea maintaining the strides that they made last season, um, and three months later, you know, he's surplus to requirements. Um, hard lesson: um, politics take over in football clubs. Um, also, you know, I'd look at that and think, well, perhaps the quality of the, the recruitment uh, might not have been as good as it could have been. Maybe the characters weren't right that he recruited. Um, but certainly um, the, the, the sort of terrifying aspect of football management is that you look at these guys and, well, if you, if you take Gary as a good example, frankly, when we were chatting and we, we, we spent a day together, mm. he looked ill. Um, he, he was a, there, was a, there was a redness beneath his eyes. There was a tiredness about him. He had a bad cough. All those sort of little signs of, of someone who's run down because he's pushing his, himself too hard. And I think that's one of the things that, that people don't appreciate about the game. And hopefully, uh, having read the book, they will, will get a, you know, a, a little glimpse of insight into it. But, you know, essentially, we're talking with, uh, about human beings here. Um, as Eddie Howe says in the book, look, I'm not Superman. Um, I, I've got a, a real feel for my sort of burden of responsibility for other people. But uh, in my position, I, I'm in a strange position because I, I, I can't show human weakness because I'm meant to be, you know, this great authority figure, this sort of, you know, someone straight out of Mount Rushmore. Um, so it's a really um, delicate situation. And again, if we, if we talk about, you know, Brian McDermott, mm. because it is so timely... I thought Brian summed it up perfectly well where he said, you know, his theory is that there are a lot of people in football who are depressed but that actually don't even know it because they're so conditioned by the, the innate brutality of the game. Really? So it's not even the case that they're depressed but are afraid maybe to talk to somebody about it? It's that they don't even realise necessarily it's depression. It's just their day-to-day -day existence as a football manager. Well, what I found really interesting, Owen, is that... Um, uh, as the book has come out, and thankfully it's, it's been well received within the game, which I, I, I feel a great um, uh, sense of satisfaction from. But I've had two or three managers come up to me because, because you know, the book begins 
um, was bookended by the story of Martin Ling. Mm. You know, the book starts with him uh, having electrodes uh, planted on his head for um, ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, to cope with uh, depression. Uh, it ends with him um, tutoring fellow managers and coaches in, in, in what was termed a resilience masterclass. But there's someone who had great moral courage in talking about how low he had been, and you know the attendant stresses of of football management did have to play a part in that. Now, um, it's sometimes when you when you're a writer, you 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 sometimes have to break professional per- protocol, and I did so with Martin because towards the end of doing the book, I, I said to him, "Look, if I was your son, I'd be begging you, but begging you not to go back into football because I've I've seen what it can do to you." And he's still done. You know, he's gone back into, into Swindon in the last couple of months and is, is doing a really good job on it. Um, so I think if you look around, since the book came out, I've had two or three other managers who have not featured in the book, and because of the delicacy of it, I can't obviously mm. you know, go too, too much deeper. But they said, look, you know, I read the, you know, I read the stuff about Martin. I've been there. I've been there. And I think the, the interesting thing that Martin found was when he was talking to those who were looking after his care in, in the Roehampton Hospital, he just got the distinct impression, uh, and to, to quote one uh, one of the doctors that he spoke to, you know, other people have been in that seat before you. So that suggests to me that the League Managers Association, who are who do very, very good work in terms of pastoral care of, of their members, um, you know, my, my suspicion is that other, other guys have, have had that type of episode and it's almost been um, not swept under the carpet because that'd be a, that would have the wrong connotations, but certainly it's been uh, a problem which has been addressed in the shadows, if you like. Yeah. No, I, the way you describe it there is really, it's really quite clear that this can't be good for people's mental health if they have all these doubts, as of course they do, about the job they're doing, about decisions mm. uh, on a daily basis, and yet can't talk to or feel they can't they certainly can't show any of the players or any of their staff or the owner anybody at the club that they're actually that I think it will, might have been Joe Dunn who said that the three words you just can't say is I don't know yeah yeah and Joe was a, I, I found a, you know, a fascinating subject and a really good guy within that book and funnily enough he's now working alongside another manager that's featured in the book Sean Derry at, mm-hmm. at Cambridge I, I, I you know I spoke to, to Joe um just before he was sacked by Colchester, uh, and then you know during the, the the you know the several months I think it was nine months from off the top of my head that he was out of the game. Now there's someone who's a a really good man, an erudite uh, individual, uh, driven personality, and a very good football coach. Um, and he had to, he, he he was difficult for him to get back in, and now he is there. Um, you know, might be that the number two role that he's taken is is in the short term at least probably a, a, almost like um you know he's he, he's a transitional role for him that um he he put it best I think the whole sort of quiet terror that you can have when you're on that in that technical area because you know that technical area is 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 the area in which now managers operate it's it's almost like their um it's their bull ring if you like you know the cameras are always on them. And the crowd are focused on them. They're almost like sort of marionettes there. And Joe spoke about the loneliness and the well. He he spoke of the snow blindness that you can get when you're in a technical area as a manager because you're looking so hard. Ultimately, you don't see anything. And and he likened the experience to being on a uh, on an iceberg, which is floating inexorably away from land, and you're looking backwards, and and the horizon's sort of disappearing. And you, you, you know, you're on your own. And he had a sort of a mental um, tick box operation where, when he when he sensed that, he would deliberately walk back to his dugout, sit down, take a drink of water, almost reprogram his brain, and then walk straight back out again. So again, it's 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 a pretty involved process. And and again, hopefully, if people read the book and understand that these guys are like you and I, you know, cut them and they bleed, um, shout at them and they'll wince, attack them 
and some will fight back and some will cower in a corner. What struck me about Joe Dunn, and for people who aren't familiar with him, he's Irish, he's from Dublin, from Inchicore, played once for the under-21s, but doesn't have a big profile over here. And as you say in the book, doesn't really have a big profile in the UK either. But he, 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 to me, he struck me as maybe the smartest guy in the book, the way he talked. Certainly uh, the, the way he described a lot of those issues, as you talk about there, was really, really resonated. Um, one part of it that I found almost hard to believe is that you have all that going on as a manager and yet in his case he feels like he also has this broader responsibility he lost his own father when he was young grew up in inch core feels quite important feels quite strongly that the background of guys is important and that you have to help them in their lives outside of the game which seems like a lot to take on on top of is that maybe a problem is he too unselfish to succeed as a number one well he's pretty it's a pretty typical um uh, attitude to be perfectly honest and it it sums up the, the modern, more empathetic, emotionally intelligent football coach. You know, we, we're brought up to believe in the myths and legends of, of the guy, you know, the teacup throwers, and people are, you know, yelling three inches in front of a player's face, and they're, you know, they're, they're spit going everywhere. Well, actually, the more modern ones, and I, I noticed there was a definite generational shift between the ages of about sort of 34, 35, from Carl Robinson and Milton Keynes. Eddie Howe at Bournemouth, up to the sort of early 40s area, um, 41, 42. And so we're talking there in terms of, you know, Joe of uh, Gareth Ainsworth, of Brendan Rodgers, of Roberto Martinez, of Sean Dyche, all very acute, emotionally intelligent guys who understand that um, they do have much more broad responsibilities. To give you an example from the book Gareth Ainsworth, who... You know, he's got that. There's there's a zen about him which I really liked. You know, he's got this sort of look of uh, you know, a guy who's just come out of the seminary in a way, and he he talks about he didn't realise it took him probably a year in the job to understand that he was the single most important person in the lives of his players because, in professional terms, he held the power of life and death over them, and uh, it only struck him then that. You know the impact of his decisions are not just impacted on a player, but it's the family and it's the extended family, and you know that's a huge responsibility to take on. And as we were leaving the the, the uh, training ground one day, we were walking through the gym. They've got a, a, a ground floor gym at his training ground at Wickham, and he pointed out a lad in the corner. They were doing a sort of a circuit, a weight circuit session, and it was a typical football scene. You know. The humour was pretty bitter and cold and callous, and they were all having a go at one another. I think they call it banter, which is a word that should be banned. Mm-hmm. But it, it, this kid, it was twenty twenty one, and he said, "Look, if you look at him now, you get the wrong opinion of him because here's someone who's, who's brash. He's standing up to the to the criticism and you know and the sort of you know the rough and tumble of, of dressing room life." But he said, "I know that this kid has lost a lot of people close to him in the last couple of years." And I see in his eyes when we're together that all he wants is someone to put an arm around him and say, look, I'm I'm proud of you, mate. I'm proud of what you're trying to do here. I'm proud of what you're trying to achieve. And that is a a dimension to the job which is far beyond, you know, winning 2-1 on a Saturday with a 94th minute winning goal, you know? Yeah, there is still that old school British football mentality that shines through even sometimes in the same manager who's also quite progressive A.D. Boothroyd is a guy you profile and there's an amazing scene uh, when he's managing Northampton half time he comes in the team are losing he punches the wall he rips apart a couple of his players and then he calmly explains to you afterwards oh yeah no that's just uh, all about that, that was all planned pretty much there are different levels of learning and I was communicating to these players on these various levels which I thought was really interesting because what it actually sounded like was a guy losing his temper in the oldest fashion possible yeah, yeah, the anger was completely synthetic, um, and it was quite—it was quite bizarre. You know, when when all that sort of kicked off, I was in a little sort of cubby hole, and I was watching the players watching AD, and they were doing anything they could to avoid his eyes. But the the older pros had that sort of like thousand yard stare, with saying, "Oh, here we go again." You know, we're going we've got this again, have we? So I, you know, I I do question whether it's any use, but Aidy was completely calm. You know, we, we we grabbed a polystyrene cup of tea and, and and walked down to the 
to the um, pitch side for the second half together. So he actually was calm because I, I I know that's the way he explained it to you, oh, but I I just I just thought maybe yeah, yeah I thought well, he was maybe excusing his behaviour by trying to put some pseudo philosophical points. No to no it. no. Well I you know I said to him you know well how often does that happen then? Uh, he said oh, about once or twice a season when I need to actually set a standard. Mm. Um, and it's funny I I I, re, um, I spoke to. Um, Joe Dunn, funny enough, about that incident. And Joe obviously worked with uh, AD as his number two at um, at Colchester. And he recognised that immediately because he told me the st- a story that at another match when they were at Colchester, before the game, uh, he said to him, right, at half-time, stay out of the way of the, um, uh, the uh, clipboard. Uh, because what he did, he walked in at half time and for dramatic effect, just kicked the clipboard across the dressing room. So he basically warned Joe beforehand <laughs> what he was going to do. And that's quite, that's quite typical in a way. Um, uh, Sean Derry told me a story about N- Neil Warnock, where Neil Warnock recognised that Sean, as a, as a player, was, was the sort of fundamental, the alpha male of that dressing room. So he, he spoke to him on a Thursday and said, right, tomorrow at training, I'm going to rip into you. I'm going to give you, you know, ten shades of hell. And it, he did it because he wanted the, he wanted to establish his own authority across the dressing room so that the, the, the players would see Sean wasn't beyond criticism as well. Now, you know, that's a fairly convoluted piece of logic. Yeah. But that's, that's the way it, it goes that, you know, I don't agree with Neil Warnock. I think he's an outdated manager. But when you look at that, that is, that is the reality of football, that a lot of it, it's not anger, it's artifice. You talked to Brendan Rogers, Roberto Martinez, Mark Hughes. Is there any difference in the preoccupations of a manager at that level in the Premier League, say Brendan Rogers, compared to somebody like Joe Dunn? Yeah, I, I think the, the the difference between if we take Brendan as a good example, I thought he had a lot of emotional depth, but the environment in which he worked um, probably militated against him actually expressing that. I think you know the, the boy from Northern Ireland was eventually, I think, at Liverpool overwhelmed by the brand, and you know Brendan, he. Uh, he was most convincing when he spoke authentically about his background, about his mum and dad. Again, there's that common theme that um, that a lot of these guys are parentally driven. Now, uh, in in Brendan's case, and you know, I'm sure, Owen, you've been in this situation before interviewing guys, where there's a moment where you, there's that, that eureka moment where you go, bang, I've got you, I've got you. And, and with Brendan, with me, was... When he was talking about his father Malachi, um, who, to all intents and purposes, is an odd job man for uh, a, a local rich businessman, um, and he was paid every week by by this guy on, on a Friday. And on one particular Friday, the guy uh, went away on holiday and, for whatever reason, didn't pay him. And Brendan says, or remembered that, that I saw the look in my dad's eyes, the, the sort of quiet terror in his eyes where he realised he didn't have any money and how how was he going to get through the next week until the guy came back from holiday and and Brendan said that was the moment that I resolved never to be beholden to anyone else in my life again and so there's that resilience and that self-reliance that that the job demands Um, and it is interesting that quite a lot of the guys um, uh, take a lot from the the, the parental influence so and that can be on the other end of the, of the scale you know maternally as well so if you say someone like eddie howe where you know he became quite emotional talking about his mum because the job didn't allow him a grieving process when she died she brought up the family of five on her own essentially his father figure was his granddad and um you know he was up at burnley when his mum died and only had a day to grieve and then had to get back to Burnley to take training. Mm. And so that, again, is, is where we go right back to the reason why I wanted to go do the book, and, and that is to, to, to humanise what is essentially a dehumanising uh, job. And what I found maybe most interesting is that the 
characters involved seemed to be happy to be humanized, which I was not not necessarily surprised about. But I don't know if you had any trepidation going into it, thinking these guys won't want to open up. Did, did it turn out that maybe actually they wanted to be asked these questions? They, they just these are issues that maybe they wanted to talk about, but did, just usually wouldn't have the outlet to do so. There is an element of that, you know. I think you know we in in, in the modern media have got our own um, uh, role to play in all this as well. You know, if you look at the modern press conferences, they're adversarial. They're a bit sort of coconut shy. You know, it's a bit like one of those, um, you know, when when you go in the circus fairground, you know, the, the whack-a-mole uh, machine, you know, mm. the, the little head pops up and someone hits it with a hammer. It's a bit like that. And so a lot of the guys said to me that it's almost too much hassle to tell the truth and nothing but the truth at a press conference because it just gets you into trouble most of the time. Um, because, you know, three words can be distorted or twisted or taken out of context, and they, they become a four-day psychodrama in the press and, uh, and, you know, and, and, the print, uh, and the electronic media. It is the great thing about doing a book with someone, and that's the great privilege of, of, of writing these sort of books, is that you get the opportunity to contextualize in 100,000 words. And they got that, and they thankfully they've read some of my other stuff, which people have been kind enough to say is is, is raw but authentic, and, and it gives some idea of the reality of the game. Um, and they they knew that okay, it would it would it, there would be warts, but there would also be a you know a, a real assessment of who they are and why they do the job and how they do the job, which the modern sort of um, heavily. PR'd, media-trained mass of nonsense that we, we put up with, um, it doesn't actually um, do anyone any favours in the end. It doesn't give the journos, the, 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 and, and by extension their readers and viewers and listeners, their, the real true perspective, and it doesn't really give the managers the best sort of outlet that they probably that they would like. So we sat down, and they wanted to talk in... in bolder uh, terms than normal. Um, and I think also there's something about a book where if you get something between hard covers, there's a degree of almost immortality to it where it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a document, a record, if you like. And you know, I, I first found that when I, the first book I did was, was a book called Family where I was embedded at, uh, at Millwall for a season. And um, that group, um, and I was, I was everywhere within the club, in the dressing room, boardroom, coaches' meetings, you know, the whole nine yards. And that group got promotion in that season uh, at Wembley. And I coined a phrase called the governors, and uh, that was the sort of the, the strong guys in the dressing room who set, the, who set the personal and professional standards of the group. Now, that group live on. You know, their, their promotion was five years ago. Uh, yet now they're still remembered as the governors. And funny enough, as it has, it's turned out, Neil Harris, one of the governors, is now the manager there. So it's... Um, and, and, and that's what struck me um, very much, was that, that people... Uh, if you look at you know, great sports... I, I don't know. Someone like Vince Hogan's book with Paul McGrath, yeah. which is a fantastic book, a fantastic book. Now, that frames Paul, for me, as a reader for the rest of my life. You know, he, he lives in, the, in that moment as, as Vince you know, re- recorded so brilliantly. So you know, I think that's where the attraction of books comes from. One, for me as a writer, and two, hopefully, for them as subjects. Absolutely. Well, listen, it's a cracking effort. Uh, it's called Living on the Volcano. Michael Calvin, great to talk to you. Thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Modern day coaching. What is it all about? Paralysis by analysis. Infiltrated by a load of spoofers and bluffers. Fellas with earpieces stuck in their ears. Psychologists, Clyde Woodward, statisticians, dietitians, and as Mick O'Connell alluded to, God save us. So Michael Calvin there speaking about his excellent book about the difficulties of being. I wouldn't throw Jose Mourinho necessarily into. Well, there is a human. Is there a human element to Jose Mourinho getting fired? W- w- would there be any sympathy? I would have a lot of sympathy for a lot of the people we're talking about there. For example, Joe Dunn, it comes across very well in that, sacked as Colchester. All these guys at those kind of levels, and I think that's what Calvin's book do- did so well. It really delved into the personal um, the personal effects of 
both holding a job as a manager and also losing that job. When it gets to Mourinho's level, is there any sympathy at all? Would you feel sorry for Jose Mourinho? No. No. You yeah, can't feel sorry. Not, not in this case. No. I mean, no. He's, he has literally been campaigning for his own dismissal, as you say, Ken, for mm. three months. So when it eventually comes, when the, the sword eventually falls, I don't really think you can have too much sympathy. Mourinho has stomped on everyone else. He has stomped on everybody who he could possibly get a, get a boot over. Every single person. And now they finally decided, okay, we've had enough of you. And it's impossible to feel sorry. Marina Hyde wrote a brilliant piece. Was that today? Marina's, yeah. Marina Hyde's piece, yeah. And it, essentially she was having, this before the sacking, and she was making, at that point, she is, uh, couldn't, she found herself not having any sympathy. And even politicians who she wouldn't have minded seeing go down when they actually go down. You usually, almost everybody, there's some sort of redeeming feature. There's some shred of sympathy you feel for them. She wasn't, she wasn't finding that for Jose. And one of the lines was, am I becoming a complete psychopath or is he really just an irredeemable prick? <laughs> that's, that's, what, that's what he has yeah. become. That's, that's how he has behaved. And maybe Mourinho is capable of finding some kind of... Uh, maybe if he is, kind of steps away from this and thinks about it for a while and evaluates his own role in what's happened here, maybe he is capable of attaining some kind of... Self insight, which will enable him to. No, that's be the case. I don't think so either, because it, it seems like his whole his whole identity now is bound up with this idea of himself as oh, Mister, you know, very, decisions. very, yeah, very rich people have uh, difficulty with that. I think yeah. that, that, gaining a level of self insight. There, I think Mourinho is insulated both by his massive success over the last ten years, but also just the fact that he's earned so much money doing it that. Why is the why is the wealth why is the money uh, because it, part of that? Do you think? Well, it, the, he got paid that amount of money because he kept winning things, and I think that it's it is just, like I'm coming at it from the point of view of living on the volcano mm. that you you're not insulated from that when you're sacked and you don't have millions of of dollars in the bank. What you have is uh, a skill set that you need to keep. Uh, to keep showing so that you can keep earning for your family. And I think that money does completely insulate you, it, it insulate you from that. And just the general human point that uh, money is tied up with self-worth for an awful lot of people. And I would say that I'd be shocked out of my, out of my mind if Mourinho was not one of those people. Like Mourinho kind of just turning to the world, like anyone who would criticise him for anything, essentially going, well, show me your medals. You know what I mean? Uh, like I remember at, at Madrid, he had that interaction with some journalist who would put something out on the radio about him and he grabs him into a side room and he's like, in the world of management, I am top. In the world of journalism, you are a shit. And you're like, why would you do that? If you were as top as you claim to be, you would never do that. Yeah. It's that, that is the, a petty, vindictive action of a bully. You know what I mean? And, that, and unfortunately, he's increasingly prone to that type of behavior. And if, uh, and if he's going to continue in that way, if he's going to, if he can't look at what he's done and, and, and think, well... Made a lot of mistakes there. You know, I shouldn't have done this, I shouldn't have done that. Sometimes you do make mistakes and it's actually better then if you can face up to the fact that you've done that rather than just like a bull, you know, going on and on. Dude, yeah. like, you know, and if, if, you, if you take what he said last, instead of self uh, of, you know, forensically looking at what he's done right and what he's done wrong, he's talking about Leicester City ball boys. You know, that does not hold, you don't hold out a whole lot of hope for some uh, lacerating self-insight when that's what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I wanted to come back to that because we started with the, po- the podcast with that interview, which is absolutely phenomenal. And now it, was, it would always would have been quite a hit, I think, that interview, no matter what happened afterwards. Now it's going to be this iconic, if, if, if and when the Mourinho movie gets made, mm. that wouldn't be a bad place to start. Well, it's getting, the ending is getting darker and darker, isn't it? It really is. kind of wish the movie had ended in, you know, in, in Madrid <laughs> when they won the Champions League with Inter. Maybe it'll have to be a trilogy. You know, I mean, the, the, this is this is maybe concludes the second act, mm. and we get to see how things go because Mourinho is is what nineteen sixty three. He's fifty two years old. That's you know he's still got plenty of years left to go uh, as a football manager. But I wonder where where, where he's going to go now because it, when he, he obviously there's no club left in Spain really big enough for him to manage. Well, there's maybe Valencia, actually. Imagine is, Mourinho as the manager of Valencia. Is there an idea now that uh, that Mourinho would be better off going for a club, un- as you say, like a Valencia, a team that isn't one of the established Top. super clubs mm. in the world, and actually just trying to improve players as opposed to trying to manage... I don't think he has any interest in that. No, I, don't I really think don't think either, he does. Yeah. He doesn't... He, like, the one thing that we forgot to mention was the fact that Mourinho... 
uh, at the beginning of the season, when he, when first of all the player when the team wasn't playing that well, he said, "Oh, you know, this is ridiculous. Uh, these guys, if if these performances continue, I'm afraid I'm going to have no choice but to bring in the young players. I'm going to have to bring in a few young players. I'm going to have to bring in the kids because this just isn't good enough from my from my top supposedly top players. But that never happened. He never did that. Like he he threatened, I'm going to do this." Never was there a chance of him actually doing it, even though a lot of the players were doing pretty badly. He, he, even in that circumstance, he, he didn't do it. He's not interested in, in developing players. He's only interested in developing his own but career. But why do you think Valencia will be good then? Well, because obviously Barcelona won't hire him and Real Madrid won't hire him. And if you're going yeah, to Spain, got, then maybe, Oh, yeah, it's just within Spain. But I mean, Paris Saint-Germain... There's got to be Paris Saint-Germain are the, are, the, are the kind of obvious next step for him if he wants to keep doing what he's doing. Paris Saint-Germain are a club... Who have the potential to win the Champions League? He could win a league title in a in a fourth, a, a fifth country, a fifth country. I mean, the that guy's would be outra- yeah. he's outrageously successful. <laughs> he is unbelievably successful. He he's, did just win a, in the last completed season. He won a league title. But th- this is the kind of weird success that he's had in in, in Porto. He left on bad terms, despite the the gr- amazing job that he'd done. He left in Spain in terrible terms. His reputation shreds. Italy. The Italians hated him, and he hated them straight back. It, he was so successful at that point that he could say, you know, I will never be back here again. You will never see my like again, Italy. And kind of doing this handcuff gesture and then sort of waving. <laughs> he was like, in Italy, he was like McGregor on the, sitting on the octagon, you know, like giving the flip and the bird to all the Italians. Making it rain to all the Italians. That, that, was his, that was his attitude. But, you know, no one in Italy really wants him now as a result. And in England, I mean, you think now... Chelsea have had him. They don't. They don't want him anymore. Well, the you club know. wishes to make clear Chelsea leaves us on good terms. Again, just to be clear yeah, on that. I don't know if there's going to be a part three at Chelsea somehow. I mean, maybe Man United. I don't know. It's just things have gone so badly that a lot of the big clubs are going to be gone. Oh, we're not sure about this guy. We're not sure. It may have to be. It may have to be a new country. A new country to uh, to annoy. A new world to conquer. Yeah, uh, that it's or like a football parasite that or <laughs> destroying every uh, atmosphere that he travels that he uh, that he ventures into. What yeah. was your option? That or you were going to say international management? I think it's a bit too soon for that. Although you never know. Not really. I think it's too soon. I think it's a bit too soon. The I just want to give you your props as well because you did write a piece. I can't remember after what game it was, or after what interview it was. But it was a number of weeks ago now, where a couple, a couple of months ago, where you pointed out. This guy is talking like a man who wants to get that sacked. Was a, that was the Southampton. That was the Southampton where he lost 3-1 and did the long speech. Because the yes, thing, the big monologue. Yeah. The reason that that was weird was that he was the one who brought up the whole idea of getting sacked. sacked yeah, yeah. No one had mentioned it. You know, the guy... The, the it was guy quite early on in the slump, yeah. Would never have even asked him that, <laughs> I don't think, because he just won the league. So who, who gets sacked a few months after winning the league? You know, nobody. It doesn't happen. So the journalists might be going, oh, this is bad, gentlemen, and noting the fact that in previous instances when results had gone this way, Abramovich might have gone to sacked manager. But, you know, he, because he just won, won the league, you would imagine that shores up your position. You know, it shores, it shores things up. Even you're given the time to turn things around. But he was rushing to, in, to inject this term into the conversation. And I don't think he's the kind of person who does that accidentally. He's like introducing that. Let's get everyone talking about this idea of me getting sacked, and I think he's doing that in in order to um, in order to, to to start the the whole conversation around it, which ultimately leads to to today. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. All right, the sportsbook podcast is out now. That features the second captains, including Maliki Clerken, number one sportsbook of the year twenty fifteen. I'm not going to tell you what it is because I want to. The trophy is quite small as well, so it took us a, very, it was small, very small writing to get that onto the bottom. Do get into we, the we shops. Get into the shops and buy the second Captain Sports Annual Volume 1. If you want to get it delivered to you, get online. But as soon as you can, I suppose, the quicker you get online, the more certain you'll be of it getting there for uh, for Christmas. But certainly within Ireland, we can do it. As long as you get it done by the end of the weekend, it'll be fine. We'll get it to you. But um, just do it now. What is in your head? Go buy three, four, ten copies. <laughs> just do it. All right. Come on. We're all excited. It's an exciting day. Get carried away and buy some books. <laughs> uh, makes very little sense. Ken, now we've got you back from holidays. Uh, there were Murph, a couple of odd jobs around the office for Ken, weren't there? Yeah, there's, there's the printers like, there's acting a, up the again. The printer is acting up, mm. and uh, we, we there's actually some ink. Car- I, I actually don't think it's a it's a technical thing. It's actually I think it's just. Do we the, ever get that door handle sorted out? No, oh, there's a the sh- door and the shelf in the kitchen. So just so, if yeah, you pop back there. Okay, thanks, Ken. Thank you. Anne. Thanks very much, Karen. Thanks, Ken. Thanks. Thank Noel. you, Karen. Thanks for listening. No more Jose Mourinho for the time being. I have a feeling we'll hear from Jose <laughs> again in the not too distant future. Take care.
is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those 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 boys. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.